Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Mark chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning, we come weak and needy, we come poor and we come helpless. It's only in your light that we see light, and so we ask that you teach us this morning, that you guide us by your Spirit, whom you have given to lead us into all truth. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Two weeks ago, we began a new series in the Psalms on the theme of repentance, and so we've considered Psalm 73, the great psalm of Solomon's turn, in which he turned from his envy and his arrogance, and he turns back to God. And we've considered Psalm 51, the magnificent statement of David's repentance, and this week we find ourselves in Psalm 38. In the course of these sermons, we've noted that there's a slight problem at times in our account of our doctrine of repentance, that's our understanding of what it means to turn to God. That for many, this idea of repentance has been conflated with the idea of conversion. It's not to say that when we convert, repentance is not involved. Truly it is when we, believe, we repent and we believe in the gospel. But that's not the last word that we say about repentance because repentance is not just something that we accomplish in a moment that we've seen that it's also a movement that characterizes the whole Christian life, that it's the dynamic that undergirds it. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin, the famous reformer of the Genevan church, and wrote this most influential book in Christianity. And he says this about repentance, that it's not something accomplished in one moment, or one day, or even one year, but rather it's a continual process. And he goes on to say that God assigns us a race of repentance, which we are to run throughout the course of our life. And this is what we're considering over these weeks, this race of repentance that God assigns us to run. And so the whole of the Christian life is repentance, and that repentance is where we turn away from ourselves and we turn to God. That is that we renounce ourselves, saying no to ourselves, and we learn to say yes to God. It's a race of denying the self and yielding the self to God. And so our psalm this morning, Psalm 38, 
has been used by Christians for hundreds of years in this idea of repentance. It's been used to grieve and to confess ongoing sins. It's particularly important to study because the psalm makes a unique claim. If you were looking at the original, you would note that there are 22 lines to the psalm. That is, there is a line in the psalm for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. They had 22, not 26. And this is a playful literary device that you find in the Psalms. You find it here and in several others, but it's making a unique claim. What it's saying is that everything you need to know, the A to Z of repentance, is found right here. And friends, this is how the Psalm has been used, is the A to Z of repentance. And so this morning as we read Psalm 38, it's critical for us to ask and answer one question. And that is just simply this. What must we reckon with in order to sustain the race of repentance throughout our lives? And what we'll see is that there's two things that we have to reckon with. Is that we have to reckon with our disease, the disease of sin. And we also have to reckon with our adoption. And so ahead of our celebration of the Lord's table this morning, let's consider both of those briefly. First, reckoning fully with our disease. As you look in verses 3 through 14, you find this very graphic depiction of a diseased body suffering beneath the weight of affliction. And many people's first read of the psalm is to say that, yes, the psalmist has sinned against God and is now experiencing physical affliction due to that sin. The Bible does at times connect sin and physical affliction, and at times we also know that the Bible disconnects that. Jesus does so in John 9. And so it's not always a one-to-one that when we have sinned and done wrong in God's sight that we are physically afflicted. And so people have asked the question, well, what use is this psalm? And is this what is being said? Is there a physical affliction due to a certain sin? While that can be the case, There's also a lot of good reasons as we read Psalm 38 to consider that something broader is going on. Because if you were to look in the prophets, specifically in Isaiah 1 or in Jeremiah 3, you'll find something very different. That disease and sickness in the body is used as a metaphor to talk about the unhealth of the Old Testament church of Israel, of their sinfulness against God. And that is what most commentators will say is happening here in Psalm 38. That disease and sickness is being used as a metaphor to speak of the spiritual unhealth and sin and rebellion amongst God's people. When you also consider that in the Jewish temple and synagogue that this psalm was often used every Sabbath. That is every week it was used as the psalm of confession. This makes good sense that what this is referring to is he describes his unhealth and his breakdown and his distress and physical affliction as he's speaking of his spiritual condition. And in this, we discover an elaborate description of the affliction of sin. That is what sin does to us. And there's five important things to note here about the presence of sin and this affliction in our lives. First, if you follow with me in verse 3, you see that sin is invasive. Verse 3, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. 
Now, as fallen creatures, we've all participated in the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve. They were instructed not to eat of one tree of the garden. They were to fast from one tree and feast on all the others. And yet, wanting to be like God, they decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this, as we have said before, it was not just some error in the appetite. It was not an expansion of their menu to simply eat dessert first or something like that. But rather, this was a critical statement in which they were distancing themselves from God. They were announcing that they wanted to be the judge of good and evil. That they wanted to be independent and autonomous from God. That they wanted to operate on their own. They wanted to determine right and wrong and reality for themselves. And it is, of course, then that God turns them over to their own devices and their own desires. And that we have all now participated in this. In Romans 1, Paul explains it this way, the result, the consequences of this turn, that we were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. We're full of envy. We're full of murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You go through the list, it's exhaustive. And it's critical for us to note that the apostle is not speaking of people out there. He's not speaking of people that we can easily categorize as different than us. He's not speaking of a group of people that we can look down upon and judge. No, he's speaking about every human. Every one of us, because we have participated in our parents' rebellion, that we are sinful, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that there is no soundness in our flesh, there's no health in our bones when we're left to ourselves. The problem is, is that in our own hypocrisy, we are frequently tempted to hide ourselves from this statement of sin's invasiveness. That we want to shield ourselves from that in some way. And so we begin to judge ourselves on a more comparative level, satisfying ourselves with a standard of righteousness, a standard of wisdom, a standard of virtue that doesn't look beyond the earth. That is, we don't really reckon ourselves before God and before his judgment. We reckon ourselves on a horizontal plane in front of other people. And friends, this is what the gospel and the love of God doesn't permit you to do. You have no permission to evaluate yourself that way, on that flat, horizontal, human plane. Because we have to hear this critique that sin is invasive, that there's no soundness in us. If we're ever going to understand what repentance is, that your problem with sin is not this ju ju that you just have a few of them. The problem with sin is it's complete, it's thorough, it's comprehensive. That nothing about us is left untouched. That's the first thing we find in Psalm 38 is the invasiveness of sin. Now second, we're also going to see that sin is a burden. If you follow in verse 4. For my iniquities have gone over my head. 
like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. And this is his actual experience of sin, the sins that actually follow from his corrupt nature. They become a heavy burden. They're too heavy for him. He can't handle them. He's dragging them around. And this is what sin does, is that it overwhelms us and it burdens us. It weighs down the conscience and traps us in its guilt and it traps us in its shame. This is the power that sin has over us. Several months ago, I got myself into a home maintenance project, needed to replace a dishwasher. And I once, many years ago, fashioned myself as handy. And I had all the tools that one might need for such a maintenance project. But over the years, that set of tools has dissipated. Some of them have grown old. They're still new in my mind. I remember when we received them at a wedding shower, but that's 22 years ago. And so I had a friend come over who knew how to install a dishwasher, and he was helping me, and he was also trying to teach me. And he said, well, we need this and this and this. And so I went out to my toolbox to find this and this and this, and it was not there. And I have to admit, I was fairly embarrassed because then my friend came out to the garage where the toolbox was, and he saw the disarray of the toolbox. Clearly had not been kept. Things were rusted, things were missing, opened up the socket set, it was all disarray, it was all a mess, and it was so embarrassing. And I knew this. I knew exactly what was going to happen that day if he began asking me for this tool or that tool. I've known this for several years. And do you know what has been the easier response for me? It's been to simply close the lid on the toolbox, to shut it up to not look at it, to not engage in a home maintenance project. Hire somebody for that. (laughs) Not enter into what it would take to right the situation because it just feels like too much. It's too heavy. There's too much to do. And friends, this is what we do with our sinfulness, especially when we have some experience with it when we've encountered failures and multiple failures in our lives, that it's easy just to close the lid, to be too ashamed. And this is the burden, the heavy burden that sin puts on us. Third, in verse five, we also see that sin is disgusting. I am utterly, or excuse me, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. This is helpful for us because typically when we think of sin and our rebellion against God, we think of freedom. We think of something that's going to be good for us. And what God is actually doing here is he's reworking our notion of sin. And he's taking us to another perspective on it, that he wants us to see it from another angle. That no sin is not freedom and life-giving, rather, What it is, is it's disgusting, that it's nasty, that it's a festering wound. And he's inviting us to demythologize sin and see it for what it really is, that it oozes and smells. It's filled with pus and disgusting things. It's unsightly. And friends, this is where it's helpful for us to consider sin 
and to put it upon the autopsy table and to really do a number on it, looking into it and asking what exactly are the contents of sin. To give you a helpful illustration, Tim Chester, he's a pastor in the United Kingdom, and he wrote a book on pornography. It's called Closing the Window. And in the first chapter, it's titled Beyond the Frame. It's helpful to consider the sin of pornography and sexual immorality there and in that first chapter. It's also helpful to consider all of our sins in this way, whether that be gossip or sexual sins, whatever they might be. Because he takes us into the deeper world where we're not just thinking of sin as freedom and just some picadillos and some things that we perhaps get into, but we're invited to see all the consequences of sin. So he he explores the world behind pornography in that chapter. The broken marriages, the physical and the sexual abuse that follows from those who objectify men or objectify women. He takes us into that level, but then he doesn't stop because there's the lives of those people who are in these magazines or videos, the lives of the people who are exploited and forced into this. He takes us into the darkness of that and describes it. Speaks of the history, the trafficking, the depression, the suicides, and the abuse that takes place. It's tragic, awful, and sad. Then he goes on to the producers, the millions of dollars that are spent to advertise, especially the millions of dollars that are spent to hook children, to get them to be regular users. He gets to the heart of it, And as we get to the heart of it, we see just how disgusting it is that this is more than just a momentary lust and a moment of pleasure. But what we have is something nasty that destroys lives and seeks to destroy life. It's disgusting. And all sin, whether pornography, whether gossip, whether greed, whatever sin that we find ourselves in, that it is disgusting. It's sick, and it needs to be unmasked, and we need to come to this gracious God in repentance and allow him to do so. Fourth thing that we learn about sin here is that it also brings despair. Verse 4, my heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. And it's here that we learn that sin doesn't give us freedom at all that actually as we find ourselves trapped in it, that it steals hope and makes us think that the only possibility of life is found in this narrow set of confines in which we have become entrapped, the confines that we presently know. And this is what sin does. Our strength fails. The light of our eyes fades. We can't see hope and a way out. And then verse 11, we see finally, that sin also isolates. Psalmist says, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. He's just speaking as to the struggle, that here in his sin and all of the depth of his disease and affliction, he's finding himself moving not further into the community and into life and into healing, but away from it. And we're not told exactly why. But just simply the way that this works out, 
that our sins can bring such shame that we don't want exposure and so we move away, or our sin can bring us such interior delight that we delight in our misery and we don't want to be discovered and found out by others, and so we distance ourselves. It works in all kinds of ways, but the point here just being that it drives us out of one of God's life-giving means, that is the community of brothers and sisters who support us as we follow after Jesus. And friends, this is the disease of sin. It follows this course, and it's not seeking the help, your health. It's seeking to destroy you. And this is what we have to reckon with. And as we reckon with it, this is what gently leads us to repentance. As we see all of its invasiveness and all of its disgust and all of its power and the way that it holds us and how it drives us out of community and life. And so God invites us to come to him. And this leads us to our second point as to what we must reckon with here in Psalm 38. That not only must we reckon with the disease of sin, but we have to reckon with something greater, and that is to reckon fully with our adoption. That is our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And this reckoning involves two specific areas. It's first is that our adoption involves God's loving correction. You see the way the psalm begins, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. And many people would say, oh yes, here it is. You talk about grace and you talk about gospel, and now here it is, that God is really not gracious, and he's really not about gospel. That he is out to get us. That he will rebuke us and reprove us. And it is easy to see how a lazy mind could perhaps fall into that trap, but this is not what the gospel is saying. But rather what is being Acknowledged here is that truth that in God our Father, who has graciously loved us in his Son, that he loves us so much that he's not willing to leave us in our filth and our disgusting sins. That he's not willing to just resign us there and leave us to sit in that cesspool. But rather, God loves us so much and he's so committed to us that he is willing to graciously exercise fatherly discipline in our lives to direct us in the way and the path of repentance. And friends, this is God's good gift. It's a part of our relationship with him. It's actually part of any good relationship that we have in this life. Most of you have heard me refer to my deceased mentor, Tim Russell. Years ago, I met Tim at Second Presbyterian Church and we formed a relationship over, over an initial set of years and working together. And at some point along the way, he pledged to me two things. He said, it'll always be my privilege to hug you around the neck. And it will always be my privilege to knee you in the groin. Those two things. And he did so faithfully. With a loving hand, correcting, guiding giving comfort, giving encouragement, giving guidance when I was going off the path, when I was getting something wrong. And many cannot tolerate today that that's love. But friends, it is. Keeping us in the good and broad places, the wide ways, keeping us in the way that pleases God, this is a good gift. 
And this is what God's adoption of us, as he brings us into his family, as he makes us his own, is he doesn't leave us to our own devices. He disciplines us with loving correction. But second, our adoption also involves a tremendous privilege. As you look at the context of the psalm, it's remarkable. The disease of sin has run a course in the psalmist. He finds himself afflicted in many ways. He knows that he's under the disciplining hand of God in certain ways. He feels the weight of that. And yet you notice where he turns in the midst of all of that affliction. He turns to God. The first words, O Lord, invoking God, calling on God's name, asking for mercy. And then if you follow into verses 21 and 22, do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Just ahead of that, 18, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. And this is the privilege of every son and every daughter of God. All who have been forgiven by Jesus, all who have been ransomed, all who have been redeemed, all who have been brought into fellowship with God through the Son, because he has died on our behalf, it is our privilege always to go, no matter the affliction, no matter the disease, no matter the course of the disease, how alienated we may feel, how far off, that our Lord Jesus stands at God's right hand and he is there to mediate for you. This is what he does, is he mediates for you. And because the true son has given himself on your behalf, you always will own that privilege of being a son and a daughter. And so you can freely come to him and you look to him in faith. And friends, this is the privilege of the adopted. It is to repent. It is to confess our iniquity. It is to say, I am sorry for my sin. This is your great freedom. That this is not a failure. That God sees your sins and knows them and he invites you to repair yourself to him. So friends, Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our rescuer. Jesus is our mediator. And it's because of that, we can reckon with these two realities. We can reckon with ourselves and the disease of sin and how deeply it is at work in us. But there is a more profound and fundamental reality to life in this world. Despite all the realness of sin and our knowledge and understanding of it, that we also have to reckon with our adoption, that the love of God is more true, it's more permanent, it's more lasting than sin itself. And friends, this is what draws us into repentance, is that profound, steadfast love of God, his mercy revealed in Jesus. And so allow that to draw you out and take you to him. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge all the ways in which we're tempted to hide. We're tempted to hide behind self-righteous judgments of others. We're tempted to hide by reducing standards. We're tempted to hide in our shame and our guilt, feeling trapped. 
but yet you invite us. You invite us to see ourselves clearly in all the disgust of our sin. And you invite us to come as those who are forgiven and redeemed, welcomed by Jesus. And so by your spirit today, prompt our hearts and may we come. May we come running to you, the fountain of life, the source of every good thing. Renew us and refresh us in all of your fatherly favor. May your loving corrections guide us to you and lead us in straight paths that are good and pleasing. And we come this morning as your children. We're granted the great privilege of prayer to make our requests known to you. We confess that we don't always know how to pray as we ought. But yet we're confident that the Spirit intercedes for us today. And so hear us as we come in all of our weakness and all of our poverty and as we make our supplications and intercessions known to you. We do ask God that conditions of peace would prevail in our world. There is war, there's rumors of war, there's anxiety, there are threats, there's great need, there are refugees, there's violence, there's suffering, there's death. And God, we ask that you'd have mercy on the Ukrainian people, that you'd be a shelter for them, that you'd be a refuge and a strong tower amidst this great crisis. We pray that the aggression would stop. And God, we ask that you restore good order, particularly protect your church and our brothers and sisters in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of Ukraine. God, we ask that our offering would give hope and encouragement to them along with many others who contribute and support as well. Provide for the needs of those who are out of their homes and dislocated from their families. Have mercy on them. And in your good providence, and you who brings good things even out of evil, will the gospel be promoted? Will the name of Jesus be known in this country despite all the devastation and all the pain? We also pr pray for our president, Joe Biden. We pray for both houses of Congress. We pray for our Supreme Court. In these difficult days, facing up with these mounting pressures, God, we ask that you have mercy on our leaders, that you give them wisdom, that you guide them in righteous paths that are pleasing to you. We also pray for Jonathan Waddell and his wife, Abigail, and their children, Daniel and Juliana, and we ask God that you have mercy on this family while Jonathan is deployed. We ask God that you bring him home safely, quickly. We rejoice that, that time is drawing to a close. Continue to grant Abigail all the strength and energy she needs, in raising her kids and tending to the home, support and sustain Jonathan in his final weeks. And Father, we also pray for our brother Brian Thomas. Reformed University Fellowship at the University of Florida. We're grateful for his work there to rebuild and restore this ministry. And we ask God that you continue to use Brian on the campus as he ministers the gospel to those who believe and to those who do not. God, we ask that you would raise up laborers, men and women who would love you and serve you and go out into life to serve you all of their days. 
Grant him wisdom in his teaching and his discipleship, his weekly meetings. Bless their interns as well. And Father, we are also mindful today of those in our own midst who are suffering. We remember their needs and ask God that you draw near to them and have mercy on them. It is your word that is a better word than we can find in all the world. And so may your spirit assure them of your great love, of your commitment to them, even beyond the grave. We pray for healing and restoration and renewal. We ask God that you lift spirits where there is discouragement. And so we pray for our brother Steve Beaver as he recovers from surgery. Pray for Barb Day, our sister, as she fights with cancer. Pray for Louis Fosnick as he grows and develops. Pray for Sue Forsyth and her back pains and troubles. We pray for Elizabeth Garnett as she faces a terminal diagnosis and ask God that you sustain her faith and keep her strong. Pray for Gar Garganus and his battle with cancer. Hector and Vielna Harima. Pray for our brother Wayne Noble and also Sandy Reynolds. God, have mercy on these your saints. They are your people. Assure them of your great love and your promise that you'll never leave them nor forsake them. And Father, we also pray for the children of our church. We're grateful for the stewardship and the gift that you've given to Christ Church. Each of these little ones, as they grow up here and mature into high school, God, we ask that they will grow up delighting in Jesus, that they will know him who freely welcomes them to repent and to turn all the days of their life. Would they know the goodness of your word and your instruction and your loving fatherly discipline? And would they find delight in your church? May they know that there is not life outside. And so bless them as they grow in wisdom and in stature and favor with you and all people. These are our prayers. We are confident that we're heard because our Lord Jesus intercedes on our behalf. And so we pray in his name as he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.